podcast devoted to the study of Hegel's philosophy of right. Paragraph 44. Um, I'm getting my German version out, if I can find it. Okay. So we're now going into the um, minutiae, or the details of um, the concept of property, which is pretty boring, I must say. It's uh, Hegel's discussion with the um, uh, legal profession, the legal science of his time. So a lot of stuff is here that belongs to civil right. Civil right, that's at least what we would call it in Holland. Uh, which is person right and property right and contract. Those are the three, yeah? person, property, and uh, contract. And that's the way he um, develops his philosophy also. And this is a very important concept that we have here, um, which in, in Latin was called the animus, that is the intention to own something. So we discussed that a little bit on the Facebook page. A person has the right to place his will in anything, or in anything, rather. Eine Sache. It has to be a Sache. So my question on the Facebook page was, what if a star can be considered to be a Sache? Then this alone would mean that we are able to own a star, simply by placing our will in something. And then the star would become mine, and my will would be its substantial end, since it, it has no such end within itself. But you rightly noticed that this absolute right of appropriation comes together with a definition of, uh, or a sort of limitation of the relationship between me and things. And this is interesting. Let's consider three things. The first, the thing that Hegel mentions and that you quote it. Why I does Hegel sometimes say Sache and sometimes Ding? Because they're giving the giving it in the in the brackets here in the translation. Um, a, a thing and and a Sache are about the same, but there is a subtle difference. A thing is something that can be the object of perception. So it, it's a limited visible object. A Sache is um, anything that is objective. So it's much broader. So a thing, a ding, is always an object of perception, like a ball or a tree or whatever. But eine Sache, I mean, uh, a contract is eine Sache, but not a thing. Um, so that is why he says here, here you have the definition, immediate individual things, that, that, that's, that's dingen. But there can be general things that can be a Sache and not a thing. So external individual things that can be objects of perception are called dingen. But here in the edition you find that he can use dingen also as the equivalent of Sache when he says all things can become the property of human beings. 
Oh, that's the things with Hegel. He also he's not very keen on using uh, ter terminology. <laughs> Mm, no, I, when it's when it's appropriate and important, he will do so. But in this case, he, he doesn't mind uh, using Sache and Ding uh, uh, as interchangeable. Okay. In some contexts, obviously, there is a reason for it. But for a beginner, it can be a difficult thing. Oh, well, let's look at the examples that I wanted to look at. Um, for instance, the air that I breathe or the air that I'm in um, cannot become uh, a property because it's not just an external thing. Uh, it's not even a Sache. Uh, it has. It, it does. It does have. Further paragraphs that you cannot own water. You can. Uh, yes. Own uh, a cup of water. Yes. Exactly. So, so how do we uh, make things individual? Uh, how do the uh, things become individual for the consciousness so that we can own them? So well, what, what we happens when water comes into a cup? What happens to the water? Why does it become a thing that can be owned then and not when the water is in the stream? Or um, What's the difference? It has a form. It has a form. It has a limited quantity within a, a container. That container is mine. It's obvious that I'm going to use that water for myself. That that makes that cup of water my property, including the water. The same thing with the air that I breathe. The air within my lungs is in a way mine. I own it because I'm using it. But I, it doesn't mean anything to say that I own the air in my room. See what I mean? Um, so the same thing with uh, the star. I cannot own it, but I, I can use it unless I can put a star in a cup. If I can, and, and that's science fiction, but it's obviously theoretically possible. Um, if I can build a sphere large enough to contain the star and the star is only doing whatever it is doing within that container, then it's like putting water into a cup. So it's not theoretically impossible to own a star, but it's not enough to do what he is saying here, and that is to put your will in something. But how about land? This is really interesting. Can I own land that I do not use? One uh, other question, it probably has to do with the translation, but he says that the thing isn't self-referential, so probably not self-referential, uh, uh, not referential, self-referential as opposed to will. So yes. does he use the, the self-reference? What word does, does he use in German for that? Uh, Selbstbeziehung, no, probably. No. Can you give me the exact uh, location of the quote? I oh, think I there is one here. place in the 44, uh, in addition. In addition. In the addition. In the addition. Uh, it says, thing is not infinite self-reference. But there is... Ja, unendliche Beziehung ihre auf sich selbst. That is what we discussed the last time, that it is external to itself. 
Yes, I understand yeah. that, but uh, the the choice of the phrase self-reference mm-hmm. sounded a bit modern. Not yeah, too. but the alternative would have been to say the infinite uh, relationship of something to itself. That is what we <clears throat> So it is as opposed to will. Will is self-referential mm. in this yeah, but why does he use the term reference in the translation? That is interesting because it's Beziehung, relationship, or relation in German. Yeah, graag, dankjewel. Um, so why doesn't it refer to itself, or why does it does does it not have a relation to itself? Because it's external to itself. It's indifferent to itself. Uh, the measurement of the rock and the, play, the location of the rock within nature is completely of uh, indifference to the rock itself. It's purely external. Its, it's spatial dimensions and its locality is of no uh, interest to the rock itself. It has no awareness of it, it has no consciousness of it, it has no self-consciousness of it. Even if it would have consciousness of itself, it would be like an animal or a plant. It would have some kind of consciousness of its surrounding, but that consciousness would not be directed to the world as such, but only to those uh, impulses and objects that are of vital interest to it. Uh, So a plant will only, quote-unquote, notice um, the the, uh, uh, presence of minerals in the soil or sunlight on its leaves and it will respond to that or rather react to that without having a concept or a consciousness of it. Uh, Consciousness is something peculiarly animal or human and even then human consciousness is thoroughly determined by self-consciousness. So the awareness of my awareness is something that is the vital ingredient of all awareness. Eh? So I, I cannot um, notice something without noticing the fact that I'm noticing it. I cannot be conscious of anything without being conscious of the fact that I'm conscious of something. And that is this self-reference that is um, present in all higher functions. Uh, and I say the difference between the way my body would respond to Uh, an impulse from the outside, let's say uh, I come into contact with a needle, so I have this uh, uh, response that my arm withdraws immediately, uh, backs backs off from the pain, that's um, an animal response that doesn't require consciousness. Uh, But when I see that there is uh, a hole in the ground, uh, two meters before me, I stop running because I can be aware of what that hole in the ground means and how I should respond to that. That's consciousness at work. Now, a rock has no consciousness and has no self-consciousness, so it's pure external, and that is uh, important. Only purely external things can be uh, possessed, but... Uh, and we discussed that last time, to Hegel, an animal has the same kind of externality. Uh, uh, That is what he says in the Zusatz, ein solches äußerliches ist auch das lebendige, das Tier, und insofern selber eine Sache. So here, again, he uses the word Sache, 
it's not not a thing in the word thing but doesn't he make a difference when he says that a slight difference when he says that animal is able to consume things yeah sure so it it has a form of uh, consciousness nevertheless it's um, it's external to itself uh, a, a horse isn't aware of his hoarseness isn't trying to improve his hoarseness isn't, isn't trying to express himself as a horse etc etc all of that is peculiar to uh, human beings and for hegel there is the boundary um, but we uh, we went over that as well but my question was how how can we say that we own land if we cannot say that we own air or water why can we say that we own land because we can cultivate land okay we, can't we cultivate water by using it for instance for um, waste disposal or using some sort of mill or something yes so then then the water yes. would become ours in the same manner that land would become ours because we cultivate it or do you see a difference in cultivation here somewhere in the paragraphs but um, I don't think I've reached that far <laughs> I'm just asking the question. We don't need to find the answer just yet because we will talk about land ownership later on. But you know that the, the Aborigines in Australia always said, we do not own land, the land owns us. So they were completely uh, flabbergasted when the English settlers came and proclaimed that this land is ours, we are going to build a fence, if you cross it, you will be shot, etc., so the whole concept of land ownership was totally alien to them. Um, land owns us, or we are guests on the land that we live on. And um, now this is interesting because Hegel makes exceptions to the rule that we can place our will into anything. There are things that we can only use without owning them, or we can use bits of it, and only what we use can be called our property. Um, but, of course, for land, is about to make an exception. Uh, because we can own land, and even the landowners uh, have a very important political role to play um, in civil society, yeah, because they provide the basic means of production for farmers, and thereby form the basis of the wealth of a nation, so it's the landowners, actually, that provide the wealth that um, any society has. Um, that presupposes that we can own land just by claiming it first, and then secondly by, well, doing with it whatever we want. We can cultivate it, but we don't even need to cultivate it. You can leave it as a wilderness and still call it your own and place a fence over it and shoot any trespasser because it's your forest now. For the sake of shooting trespassers. Yes. You, you, you can hunt animals and, and you can hunt trespassers and that's a nice, <laughs> uh, uh, nice diversion from the... Uh, um, the, uh, the um, 
everyday life. And everyday. Yeah, the, the everyday boredom of the wealthy, I was about to say. Uh, so that would be interesting. Um, but, I mean, here is a problem. How can you own land if land, in a way, functions similar to a star or to water? Now, of course, you can put a fence around land, but what you're then doing is not so much um, making your ownership real, um, but it's it's a very blatant and public way simply to deny others the use of something uh, without it ever becoming the same as uh, real property. That that's at least is my theory, that with land you can... Um, uh, destroy the access that others would have. You can prevent others from accessing the land, but that in itself does not mean that you can own it rightfully. So with land, we have a very, very difficult situation. Um, I think there are a lot of conditions to be met before you can say that you own land. Um, if I buy a farm... And my intent is to let um, all the animals roam free and to let the grass grow wild and to let uh, um, all sorts of wild animals come in. I would be prevented of doing so, doing so because it would be a hazard for the uh, health of the neighboring farms. There would be all sorts of insects that would thrive and all sorts of unwanted birds and, and wildlife that would come into my um, wilderness and it might be threatening and dangerous for other farmers around me. So there is that's at least one of the conditions that when I buy a farm, I'm supposed to farm it. So land ownership, like the ownership of a house, has limitations. I can do with my property whatever I want to do. That is the basic right of any proprietor. Yet, if I buy a house, I'm not free to put it on fire. Uh, why not? Because of the damage it gives to others and the pollution, and uh, society does not want this wanton destruction of property to take place. So there are lots of moral and legal reasons why I cannot do that. Although property means, as such, in an abstract manner, the total and free um, uh, beschikking um, control over whatever I own. That reminded so. me of that. Uh, some artist, I forgot his name, I think it was John Landor, something like that, who destroyed all of his property some 10 years ago. He had all of his prop property destroyed it was uh, happening, or the, it, it was <laughs> part of artistic work. Probably had money on a bank account, but all of his house, car, all of his property, he had it destroyed. But do you remember just a couple of weeks ago, I forgot the name of the artist, but there was um, a work of art sold in an auction, and as soon as the owner was known and the price was set, then the, the work of art, the, the small uh, painting, oh, destroyed itself. It destroyed itself. Halfway, yeah? It, it destroyed itself uh, by... Uh, what is that called in English? A, 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 shredder. a shredder, yes. 
but only halfway. Yeah? So um, the work became pretty mobile. But it wanted to say, I guess, that you cannot own a work of art or that the owner can do with a work of art as his property, whatever he likes. Uh, something like that. It had to do with ownership of a work of art. Right? So the work in itself, as it was before it was shredded, was uh, owned by the uh, maker, by the artist, and anyone who bought it in a way, shredded it, and the work of art made that explicit, that ownership of a work of art means shredding that work of art in a way, destroying its its integrity up to a point. And the interesting thing is, of course, that the art world responded um, in an opposite fashion, and the price of, of or the value of the work um uh, went up by I think something like twenty five percent, so it's worth much more to the present owner than it was before, which is a, a very good trick. You buy something for for one million, and as soon as you get it, get it, the work does something, and now uh, you have earned two hundred fifty thousand pounds or something. I mean that's brilliant. Um, but okay, that, that is yet another thing. Can you own a work of art? Can you own a book? Can you own a manuscript? Can you? What, what does it mean to have property rights to something that isn't a thing? But uh, what is uh, uh, the rights of reproduction? What is the right of um, uh, authorship and all of that? Um, there are many things in our society that are... Um, regulated with the use of the abstract notion of property where the notion of property itself loses its concrete contents. So how can I own a digital file when that digital file can be copied 10 million times without any difference whatsoever? Um, and exists in this digital world of the internet. Um, what what does it mean that I I own it? So we have to redefine again the notion of property, because that uh, electronic file is surely not a thing. Um, so that that's just uh, to say that we will run into all kinds of these questions when we try to. Um, use these abstract categories of property and contract, etc., to things that happen uh, within the world of art and religion, etc. Uh, uh, speaking about religion, uh, who is the owner of a church hymn? Who is the owner of a sermon? Uh, that might be a point uh, of law, huh? If I deliver a sermon on Sunday morning, who is the owner of that sermon? The church in which I pronounce that sermon? Me, because I wrote it? Or is it, by definition, something that has no owner and anyone can use it and it's even intended to be used by anyone? Well, can they change it then? Um, they just drop my name and then they, they use it again. Um, I know of people in the church, uh, laymen, who take three or four sermons and they cut and paste and 
they make a new sermon and when it's their time then they come onto the pulpit and they um, read out aloud that um, that uh, composition of theirs it's four sermons and uh, cut and paste work now who is the owner of that sermon so ownership in this abstract sense is very difficult to apply to things that have a spiritual and not a natural existence he says here Hegel says here that the um, natural things belong properly to the notion of the abstract notion of property but the not natural things the things that are made by human beings or are spiritual in nature um, that's something else and we still have a legal system that tries to address uh, issues of, of um, ownership of those spiritual uh, things um, with the use of this abstract uh, form of law. Okay, but we need to go on and to, to be able to answer questions like this, we first have to make this division between possession and property. So we need to go to paragraph 45. And then we have the answer first to the question, why can't I own a star? To have even external power over something constitutes possession. Let's say property without possession is impossible. You cannot have property without possession. If you don't control it, you don't own it. So, <clears throat> to have even external power over something constitutes possession, just as the particular circumstance that I make something my own out of natural need, drive, and arbitrary will, is the particular interest of possession. So, possession is the transitional category. Um, my needs and drives and arbitrary will um, give me an orientation to a world of objects that I devour and consume and use and stroke and uh, uh, combine into a work of art or whatever I do with them but that's something that I do out of my natural needs and drives and there's always some particular interest uh, I like this I like this cup of coffee or I like this bowl or I like this um, whatever I have before me. Um, and that has nothing to do with the recognition of that possession or my right to that possession. It's simply to have something in my uh, sphere of control. Um, if I take your car, I am in possession of that car. But I'm still not the owner because you are entitled to it. I mean, that's the basic difference. Theft would be impossible if possession is not part of property. Um, so possession gives the illusion of ownership and theft is only possible when I have the illusion of ownership which I can have if I take a thing out of your sphere of control and put it into my sphere of control. So I go into your house, take away your laptop. Now it is something that is in my house. That's the illusion of uh, property because it's in my possession. 
Um, so possession is what some people have said is 50% of the law, right? so 50% actually of um, what defines um, um, a property. Even though possession is merely something that belongs to natural needs, drive, and my arbitrary will. Do you see that? So possession comes out of those anthropological categories, but still it's, it belongs also as a presupposition to property, and it is the point where my simply consuming stuff uh, goes a bit further. I mean, it's, it's the difference between grabbing an apple and eating it immediately and grabbing an apple and laying it aside for uh, eating it tomorrow. When I lay it aside for eating tomorrow, it's possession. When I buy it in a shop and it goes home, that is property. There is the subtle difference between the two. And if I simply eat it, then it's neither possession nor a property. It's sim- sim- uh, simply an, um, uh, a food, a consumable good. So we go from consumable good in the anthropology through possession, which has two sides to it, the sides of the natural drive and the side of law. We go to property which is uh, only a category of law. So possession is a transitional category. And watch out in Hegel for transitional categories. They're also uh, always very instructive. So why do, I wanted to ask, why does he have such a transitional category? Does it have many implications later on? Not only theft, but also other things. Why would he need, uh, in his dialectic method, a transitional category? To come from one um, division of philosophy to the other. Um, from consciousness to self-consciousness, we need a transitional category. To come from being to nothing to becoming, we need transitional categories. Category of nothing is the one that we then need. There is always a, a transitional category. That's that's um, elementary to the dialectic method. Well, of course, I, I believe it makes sense, but uh, sometimes when I don't have insight in the whole systems, so from my point of view, sometimes it's difficult to understand why is Hegel making so many mm. distinctions. That, that, that is uh, the reason to ask. They probably have a place in the system and place in the philosophy of right and mm. The, their own legitimate place, but it always pops up as the question, why, the, why is it necessary? What are the implications? Well, more to the point, uh, why is it necessary in this case? Suppose that you describe humanity only from the point of view of anthropology. So you were, you're talking about consumer goods, you're talking about uh, hunger and thirst as drives, etc., You can do that. You can make a biological picture of uh, humanity. And then totally um, different from that, in a totally new uh, area of science, you start talking about property. Now, what is then the implication of that? And property becomes a purely legal and social concept that has no relationship whatsoever to my basic uh, nature, to my basic uh, uh, needs and drives. My needs and drives go only so far that I want to use things, and then the law describes a purely 
um, uh, let's say, how I should behave as a citizen within a society. So there would be no connection between me as a natural individual and me as a citizen that has rights and duties. Here, in addition, Hegel says that uh, the property, we already discussed it, but uh, explicitly, that property is a design of freedom. So yes. it is not just means, but it is a design of freedom is an essential end for itself. So it's much more than just formal law. Yes, but, it, but the whole, the whole uh, uh, remark here, makes uh, the difference between possession and property very clear. So it's it's a matter of where do you... Uh, wh- what is your perspective? If we're talking about the needs, then possession is a means. But that that is not... A, so then property is never an expression of my freedom, but only of my need. And now property is an end in itself, so it's a pure expression of freedom. What has freedom to do with my needs? If freedom is a purely uh, spiritual uh, property, um, the way I relate to the world, what is the relationship to my natural being, my needs? I mean, this is a very important thing. It decides the place of economy in social philosophy. If freedom is totally bound up, totally connected to my needs, if freedom is simply the expression of my ability to provide for my needs, then economy is the basis of uh, uh, society. Economy is the first and the only real category of what is happening in social life. On the other hand, if it has no connection whatsoever, whatsoever to my needs then freedom can be the freedom of a few. And the only thing they need to do is to organize the state in such a manner that um, the majority is able to um, provide means for the satisfaction of their needs. So freedom is not the property of all, and certainly not necessarily. Only those should have freedom that can provide for all. Uh, that can uh, form the basis of an economy that ultimately uh, provides for all. That's the Notstaat. Eh? That's the, um, let's say, the um, the organization of a society only for the needs of its uh, citizens. So you can exaggerate in one direction and say, well, all property is about possession of stuff that I need, Or in the other direction, you can say um, a property is only a meaningful uh, for spiritual beings, which is maybe just an elite within a society that uses that to provide for everyone else. That's somehow less exaggerated, but that's what Hobbes says, that the only free person is the servant of all because he provides the necessary stability in society for all to take care of their own needs. Eh? That's the Leviathan uh, position of Hobbes. But here you see that precisely because Hegel does not want the economy to dominate social philosophy, and he doesn't want a kind of political liberty that is, um, uh, let's say, unnecessary, is uh, gratuitous, uh, has no 
real connection with real life. Uh, that's why he, he tries to find already here the connection between possession and property, as is also the case within law, because in any discussion of the law of property, we have this ancient distinction, this already Roman distinction, between possession and property. So rightful ownership versus um, the power to uh, dispose of something. So Hegel doesn't invent the connection, but he uses, he utilizes the connection to make a very important preparatory point about the um, relativity of the economy. If social life is not just about um, uh, satisfying our needs, then the basic category is not possession, because possession is all about satisfying our needs. And we are not simply, we, we are not needy people. Our neediness, our hunger and thirst do not define us. What defines us is our self-relation, therefore also our liberty, which is a consequence of that. You see what I mean? How important yes, this is? it's much more clear now, and it is the the answer of the to the previous question as well. Why why are such distinctions necessary? Yep. In the system, it also yep. answers that question, covers that. I think so. I think that is the reason that he uh, uses possession um, as uh, his transitional category. I mean, there are so many things and everything is in its place, so it's incredible. <laughs> <coughs> Still, it, it, leaves, it leaves us with questions. doesn't mean that there are no questions, of course. Yes. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's really <laughs> well, the, it, it's difficult. I tried to explain that to my wife the other day. It's very difficult to... Uh, find fault with Hegel. Uh, so even when Hegel contradicts my theological instincts and intuitions, I still have to take him very, very, very seriously. Um, I don't want to simply respond to Hegel by using some kind of authoritative uh, argument uh, and say that the matter is already decided. No, you have to really take Hegel... Um, obviously, you have to take him seriously. And that is also where he contradicts your own intuitions. This I find I, I found really an eye opener. I, I always had a kind of, uh, well, let's say, a lack of respect for uh, lawyers and uh, the law, until I read this abstract right passage, and I think it was the fourth or fifth year of my philosophy studies, and then I started reading uh, law books. So I I read um, some of the um, uh, theoretical introductions to civil law, uh, including so the matter of property and possession, and that was quite interesting. And then I started to get this huge respect for the way that Hegel takes this one step further, and um, already here makes it clear what is really at stake, and there's quite a lot at stake. Um, it has been in discussion in the Netherlands um, for a while. Um, does Hegel take um, uh, our neediness, our finitude, 
um, and not, uh, into account. And does he do so adequately? And the discussion was that because he did not, he gave rise to Karl Marx, who did. So to Karl Marx, human beings are essentially labor, and labor is an expression of our neediness, our ne- the necessity that we have, uh, like the laborer or the knecht in the passage uh, about lordship and bondage in the phenomenology. Uh, we, we need to do something to nature to provide us with food. Uh, we have to bake or boil uh, our potatoes and we have to boil the vegetables and we have to kill the animal and uh, cook it, etc. We have to do something and that is labor. Um, that starts with collecting and then it becomes cultivating and then it becomes production and then um, we have this endless quarrel, of course, between the ownership of the means of production um, uh, and then the, the, the actual uh, factor of labor itself and then uh, in the 20th century the notion of consumption. All of that is an economical way of thinking. How should we organize society in such a way that this finite being that needs to labor in order to um, survive um, can truly do that? Now, Marx says something very interesting in one of his passages. I think it was in his critique on, on Hegel's philosophy of right. And he says that you, human being is not a laborer has this quality of labor or this ability to labor, but he is labor. He defines humanity as labor. So it's the the first and foremost essential characteristic of a human being that he has this ability to labor, to cultivate, to produce, to change, to not just possess, but in, in the possession change, uh, transform the nature of uh, his possession. Um, then the discussion arises, well, what did Hegel see? Is Hegel now um, an anti-socialist libertarian? Does he say, no, of course not, the uh, economy uh, will take care of itself and the and, um, the needs of the people will be automatically met by the market mechanism and all of that. Did, did Hegel say that? Is he the opposite of Marx? Uh, is he like a a, a neo-libertarian uh, capitalist. And some have said yes, because Hegel loses all sight of the needs of human beings. And others have said, no, of course not. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the whole of Hegel's social philosophy is too much connected to the idea of human finitude and, uh, and needs. So we had this interesting discussion in the Netherlands uh, between people like Jan Hollak and Paul Kobbe, and my own teacher, Keisha Brods, was involved in that as well, um, about the, the degree in which Hegel uh, either ignores or exaggerates um, the uh, characteristic of our neediness or our finitude. Now, that's an interesting question, and I'm reading this with uh, some kind of uh, sensitivity to that question, and here, obviously, he says there is a difference between um, considering human beings in relation to needs if these are taken as primary, 
which suggests that Hegel would say you should not take them as primary. The needs are not primary. Even in this anthropology, the needs or hunger and thirst and the like are not the uh, ultimate category. The ultimate ca category is happiness, glückseligkeit. So if you consider the whole of what we strive for um, from within the sphere of our desires and wants, etc., um, then we should talk about happiness. And in the introduction to the philosophy of rights, remember that he also talked about happiness, glückseligkeit, as the ultimate goal of the exercise of freedom. So there you have another transitional category. That's the second one. Uh, anthropologically speaking, our ultimate goal in everything we do, the high point of the theoretical mind, is happiness. <coughs> But what is happiness? That is, from an anthropological point of view, that our needs are met. But from a, a social philosophy point of view, it is that we are free. That we are truly free. So how can we combine the two? How can we combine the basic idea of citizenship as freedom that exists for itself, on the one hand, and the other idea of uh, my economic being as someone who should and must labor in order to satisfy uh, his or her needs, which are defined by my uh, physicality, my, my human body. Ultimately, it's about eating and drinking. You can be as rich as you want, but just as King Midas, if everything you touch becomes gold, you become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, but you die of hunger and thirst. And that's the lesson of that fairy tale. So that, that's a nice question, or rather, it's not a question, it's, it's just focusing you on underlying issues that will come to the surface much later on, but they are already important here. What does this mean if these are taken as primary? So they are not primary, there goes Marx. If they are not primary, we don't have ultimately uh, an adequate Marxian view of our uh, humanity. Then labor isn't the defining category of humanity. Well, that is something to say, that we are not defined by our economy. And that rings a bell with the article that um, we read, we both read, I think, about the um, the non-capitalist view of Hegel, eh? or that Hegel does not have a capitalist view of society and doesn't take the economy that seriously, or rather says that the, the, the whole meaning of society goes beyond the economy. Yes, so, beyond the particular interest of civil society, I remember only that that the state cannot be influenced by particular and shouldn't be influenced by particular interests. Exactly, that is one of the things that... That, that, that is pretty important when it come, comes to Marx because, uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't really see the connection between, <laughs> between Marxists and Marx. <laughs> I often well. fail to see connection with, between all those regimes and Marx mm -hmm. but uh, that is what happened at least um, that is how I see our totalitarian mm -hmm. past 
that there was particular interests of cliques that were governing the states. And we still have that. Yeah, but that, that is the political issue. Remember from the article also that Hegel says, as soon as the economy becomes the basic category, then democracy and the whole sphere of politics becomes a means to an end. It becomes the, the front of something that goes on beneath it. Um, so, um, uh, you sh- you, you, what you have now is capitalism under the guise of libertarianism. The whole idea of democratic liberty is in a way just a supporting structure for a rampant uh, egocentric and egoistic uh, strife for uh, for wealth and, and proper ownership of the means of production. Um, but we, you know, we can discuss that pretty adequately when we come to Hegel's view on land ownership, which I think is still. Uh, I mean, in Hegel's era, the main means of production was not to have a factory, but to own land. So for him, land ownership was vital. But in the era of Karl Marx, we had this industrial revolution, which Hegel only partially uh, went through. Yes, but Marxism was applied only in rural countries, as far as I know. So this is also why I failed to see the connection. I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, I was trying to say that Hegel talked about... I the mean, con- communism uh, that happened in Russia, in, oh. in China, those were rural countries. The bourgeoisie was just waking up in Croatia, really. Mm-hmm. We had the nobility before, so we, we were a half-feudal country. Sure, but as soon so as... Uh, it had nothing to do with the situation. No, here. but in in the West, where... Uh, the Industrial Revolution came earlier and with much more success at first, it was completely impossible to have a vibrant and working uh, socialism or communism. So uh, Marx found very soon that the French and the British and the Dutch were not interested in that kind of a view and that the only kind of countries that were interested in that were countries that had not yet experienced the full uh, um, the full uh, development of um, uh, the industrialization. As soon as a country became industrialized enough, it could only maintain that uh, kind of... Um, in industry by having this uh, political ideology of ownership of the means of production and a class of uh, working class, etc. That was the social uh, necessity to maintain um, the Industrial Revolution in itself. And it had no answer to the consequences of that, which meant that um, uh, farmers were depossessed and there was poverty in all levels and uh, laborers were re- replaced by machines, etc., etc. Uh, there was no answer to that at all. I think everybody thought that uh, uh, the church would take care of the poor and the rest would adapt or die, and that, that was simply it. But uh, Hegel didn't concern himself with factories. That is what, only what I tried to say. And, I and read some uh, paragraphs where he, where he is discussing um, 
common proper proper joint property. I don't know what the trend. I can't remember the true, exact translation. Common, common property. property. Oh yeah. yes, we reached the common property. Mm-hmm. Well, let let's read it. Let's read it. So, since my will is personal and hence is the will of an individual, becomes objective in property, the latter takes on the character of private property. And common property, which may by its nature be owned by separate individuals, so let's say the, the roads of a city, or the uh, park, or, well, what can you say? can be owned by separate individuals, a park could be owned by an individual, takes on the determination of an inherently dissolvable community. So it's possible that the community that owns something can be dissolved into uh, a separate clique that owns it together or one individual that owns it Um, individually um, in which it is in itself für sich a matter sache for the arbitrary will whether or not I retain my share in it so he is here making the distinction between private property and property owned by some kind of congregation some kind of um, uh, connection between individual wills which is uh, freely undertaken. I mean, you and I could buy a car together and in itself it is possible that I then say, well, I don't want to own it any longer, so I'm not going to pay for the taxes anymore. It's a dissolvable community. That's inherent. But he in says that, that uh, in the notes somewhere that it is said that uh, monasteries, for example, uh, so the, the, the who, that were communities, uh, shouldn't have uh, that kind of property, so common property. That is a good thing that their property has been taken away. Yeah, here you see his reasoning. Um, first of all, he says the utilization of elementary objects is by its nature incapable of being particularized in the form of private possession. There again, we have the statement that you cannot own water, you cannot own air. <coughs> But now he has this, he has this example. The agrarian laws of Rome embody a conflict between community and private ownership of land. Then he says the latter, so the private ownership of land, as the more rational moment, had to retain its supremacy, albeit at the expense of other rights. So the agrarian laws in Rome, in his consideration, and I haven't looked it up, I haven't... uh, seen those in particular, uh, but it was possible for a community to own land. Let's say a village could own several farms and could give the rights to work the land to particular individuals and private ownership. So you could have individuals that owned a piece of land for themselves and they could do with it what they wanted. They could be a farmer themselves or they could leave the farming to others. Now, he calls that the more rational moment. Why does he say so? Precisely because what he here says, that this community that owns together a piece of land is inherently dissolvable. There is no necessary connection between such a community and its property. Let's say that you have a corporation 
of 20 people who have a combined ownership of a piece of land. And then two of them decide, I'm not going to be owner anymore because I'm going to move to Croatia, and that's too far from my Dutch farm, so um, I'm going to step out of this um, con this um, uh, community. Well, so the community changes. It becomes, instead of 20, it becomes 18. Is it still the same? It's weakened up to a point. Um, when it goes down to two, it's weakened up to a point because who is going to make decisions about that property? So he says he says that it is much more efficient to have one owner because that one owner can simply make up his mind and decide what to do with his property. If you have this community with some kind of decision-making process and people can come in and they come out, and come out uh, and you have to arrange for that as well. That is all a matter of the arbitrary will. And that is not what he is seeking after all. So that is why he says it's far more rational to have private ownership of land because it's more efficient. And of course it's at the expense of other rights because as soon as one person owns the land um, a lot of other people are excluded they have to get the permission of the one owner to do something. So he's discussing here communism, early communism he's discussing here. So the agrarian laws of Rome and the community property that he was uh, sought for uh, that day and the communes that arose in the early 19th century uh, and the, the utopists and, and the, the, the social idealists that talked about common property, everything is common property. He's saying that is not rational because there are all, let's say, arbitrary communities that arise, people who are interested in this piece of land. Well, they um, conduct themselves as co-owners. They are together, they are the owner uh, of that piece of land, but it's all arbitrary. You can go out of that, you can dispense with your... Uh, right of property and you can come back and uh, regain it and that's just chaos yes. the second example is then entailed family property contains a moment which is opposed to the right of personality in hands of private property if a family owns something that would mean for instance that um, uh, I as a father would have three kids and they would have six grandchildren and it would be family property. Um, that means that I am the owner, but still there is some kind of opposition within my own family um, as to uh, what I decide and they can maybe uh, change what I decide and there is this maybe battle of personalities. But... If, if I am co-owner, if I am head of a family and in that sense owner, if I am one of a community of owners, where is this expression of free will in an object? Uh, I mean, property was defined as to put your will into something, to express yourself in the form of the object that you own. Now, can you do that if you are not the single owner, but if you are part of a collective or you're part of a family? That is basically what he's saying here. There is no expression of my free individual freedom. Now, sorry, of my free individual will, which is my freedom. Uh, 
Um, so he says private property in this abstract sphere of right is the only kind of property. What you have to get is um, some kind of limitation on property, but you do not want to um, set apart next to private property something like communal property. That doesn't work. Communal property is a kind of um, um, uh, a contradiction in itself because property, by definition, must be individual. You can call it property if you own together with someone else, uh, but it's not its not really property, is it? It's not the expression of your freedom. You, can you, in this sphere of abstract right, have a communal freedom? What would that be? Um, would it not lead to this situation that nobody, if everyone is owner, then no one is owner? So if the whole of Holland, uh, the Dutch uh, people, own everything within the Netherlands, then nobody does. And then uh, nobody has a, a guarantee, a guaranteed possession. Nobody can exercise any right whatsoever to what he has. Um, so I think that is what he's trying to say. To say property must be individual. What I found uh, odd is this uh, translation: corporate person, moralische person. Why is it moralische person? Um, because in opposition to a legal person, like a, a company, can be a legal person. Okay. Can be considered fictionally as if there is a single uh, agent, a single owner, but um, a moral. Uh, uh, a person um, that is something like indeed a, a family or a community of persons. They are in a moral sense a, a person, but they cannot be in a legal sense a person. But those determinations which concern private property may have to be subordinated to higher spheres of right. So that is the, the way he looks for a limitation of private property by saying that, of course, the community or the state can impose legislation that limits the extent to which I can exercise my property rights. As is the case with private property, when it becomes the property of a so-called corporate person or property in more main. And so when I and a friend together buy something, then we are together a moralische person. Mm-hmm. When we do that as a company, we are a legal person. I thought so maybe it is some legal terminology, something. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the word moralisch for Hegel is not a legal term. Mm-hmm. Not a legal term. But if you and I buy a car and we just have this this under underhand contract that we can use it, uh, you can use it on even days, and I can use it on uneven days. Um, which there are more of so I get to use the car two days more a year than you do Uh, but then we are a a corporate person that is that simply who is the owner well even there is you are we still a corporate person no 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 no. we don't have a contract no we don't have a contract as soon as we have a contract 
you act as an owner in your own right and I act as an owner in my own right and we describe a transaction. Here's no transaction. We just consider ourselves to be joint owners. And it's just what we decide because we don't have a contract, we don't have a legal document. Maybe it's in your name, so you're legally the owner, but we have this understanding that we can use the car like that. And to us, it's like um, having a joint property. Well, Hegel says that. Doesn't mean a thing. Unless the community or the state gives some legal status to that. Doesn't mean a thing. Nevertheless, such exceptions cannot be grounded in contingency. So... um, it just happens in a way. It's, it's not necessary, but it just happens. It comes about, uh, whatever that may mean. Private arbitrariness, eh? you and I deciding that we consider ourselves to be joint owners. Or private utility, I can't pay for all the expenses in the car, so I'll let you use it and you pay in exchange something like uh, uh, half of the costs uh, without us drawing up a contract to uh, regulate that but only in the rational organism of the state. Now, here is the answer. So, ultimately, exceptions to the individual nature of private property can only exist when the state, in a rational manner, so it has to be able to defend its position, to defend this kind of legislation, legislation, uh, defines exactly when we can have something like co-ownership. And then it should be just an exception. So there can be exceptions to the rule that um, property is private. But uh, I know of no example uh, in our present society where you have this moralische person uh, and and, uh, um, joint ownership without a kind of contract or without, uh, I mean... Neither do I. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. And whatever we have, I mean, corporations, uh, building corporations, uh, of course, the members of that corporation are joint owners. But in a way, they are shareholders more than joint owners. They don't act like owners. If you have a firm, a firm... Um, which has a silent partner who only gives money and who has a, an active partner who is doing all the work, they are joint owners in a way. But that is completely regulated by the state um, as to the rights and duties of these two um, uh, partners in that firm. If you have a... Um, what is that called in English? Um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we call it a namlose vennootschap. So it has no... The, the company is not in anyone's name. It has uh, shares and stockholders. Uh, it's ruled by a director who is... A CEO who is appointed. Um, you, um, if, if you sell your company to shareholders, then you become a Hubblepub Limited. Uh, uh, something limited. I forgot the name in English for that kind of um, company. Uh, a company I, that goes public. You know what I mean? A company that goes public and sells shares. And every share is a certificate of ownership. 
So if a company has 10,000 shares and you own one share, you are owner of one ten thousandth of that company. So if it makes one million in um, uh, uh, in profits, then you are entitled to one ten thousand of one million in profits because that is the um, the uh, effect of your part, your piece of uh, ownership. Now, of course, the state organizes that kind of ownership. It organizes that part of the economy. So that might be... But that's not a moralische person anymore. Eh? It's not a corporate person. Um, it's um, uh, legal, a, a legal form of possession. And even if you are the owner of a piece of the company, it doesn't mean that you have anything to say about the company. Of course, in the stockholders meeting, then all the stockholders um, have... They have indeed something to say about a company because they can appoint, appoint and fire uh, the CEO and members of the board, etc., etc. So that is an example of joint ownership, but it's legal ownership. And the company as such is a legal person, not a moralische person. Now, the idea of Plato's Republic contains as a universal principle a wrong against the person inasmuch as the person is forbidden to own private property. Did you know that about Plato's Republic? Yes. Okay. No. Yes, read that. And then, of course, the consequence is a fascist state. That Plato's Republic turns out to be a fascist state. <laughs> a nightmare. Uh, and a nightmare, yeah. <laughs> If a person cannot own private property, he has no sphere, no external sphere in which to exercise his spiritual nature. The idea, fortunately, of a pious Plato's or friendly... public has no privacy whatsoever. But privacy is something else. Yes, but that is also an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, don't want to live in Plato's Republic? No, but okay, <laughs> there's some benefits to it if you are a philosopher. Um, <laughs> but uh, the idea, of forcing of a pious or friendly or even compulsory brotherhood of men. There you go with this early 19th century uh, communism with communal property and a ban on the principle of private pro property may easily suggest itself to that disposition which misjudges the nature of the freedom of spirit and right and does not comprehend it in its determinate moments. So communism is out because it's stupid. <laughs> it's simply stupid. It, it, it uh, has the, the wrong idea of... Um, the nature of the freedom of spirit that is necessarily individual and it is necessarily connected to property, to private property. Now, this does not mean that the extravagant and obscene forms of wealth that we see nowadays, which are protected by the notion of private property, would be um, uh, accepted, uh, would be acceptable uh, by Hegel. But in his day and age, wealth came from land. So again, we have to consider that wealth wasn't independent of, um, of, uh, of land. There's a very interesting discussion in the phenomenology about the relationship between wealth and politics. Um, 
and that is um, that's interesting because in it Hegel suggests that politics should respect wealth and wealth should um, uh, serve politics. Uh, and with politics, he then just means the common good, the uh, uh, let's say the rational state. Uh, so politics should never try to um, uh, nationalize companies or to grasp land to enforce its own ideas. Uh, it should leave that part of civil society alone. But on the other hand, the wealth, simply the accumulated uh, uh, richness, uh, the products of uh, land and labor, uh, should again be used to enhance society. It should never be used for any kind of uh, egocentric goal. So that is how he describes the relationship between the two and criticizes the kind of uh, undialectical uh, relation that most people think that wealth and politics are in. I mean, they are, are either pro-wealth and they diminish the role of politics or they are pro-politics and then they diminish the role of, uh, of wealth. But there is, to a degree, a meaningful discussion within society between the two. Um, and I think one country in particular nowadays shows the excess, the, the completely abstract uh, nature of that kind of discussion, and that is the United States of America, um, uh, where wealth defends itself by suggesting that it has beneficial effects for society. Um, I mean, the, the, the Microsoft boss can say, I spend more than 140 million, that is to say 1% of my uh, net gross uh, uh, I spend on charities, from oh for yes, do I know that <laughs> I lost some charities uh, he spent <laughs> his money on and these charities are, are actually uh, ideological tools it's, it's, there you go I That's, had to go yeah. with one of those charities I didn't get to the top obviously mm. but uh, <laughs> <coughs> yeah. I, I got far enough to see it is pretty much obvious Yep. They're funded by him. <laughs> you have wealthy people in the Netherlands as well, but they will never try to defend their position by that uh, kind of reasoning, and that's the way it works in the United States. So that's part of the um, ideology of neoliberalism that you people have to. People are not even aware how dangerous these uh, things actually are that are funded by wealthy people because they're promoting policies and interests that are not in the interest of common good and it's all uh, something shiny and new and great and scientific and there are a lot of people involved, tens of thousands of people involved who want to build their careers, not thinking how it will affect the future generations. Sure. That's absolutely correct. But it works fine on the outside. It looks good on paper. Did you read this? This is so funny. This is so funny. As for the moral or religious dimension, when Epicurus' friends plan to establish such an association with communal property... 
He prevented them from doing so for the simple reason that their plan displayed distrust. I think that is very, very nice and intelligent uh, argument. Uh, why enforce communal property unless you distrust the way um, your brothers and sisters in the community will use their private property? Why not trust each other in such a way that you say, okay, you, you own 80% and I own 20%, but of course we are such friends that you will use your 80% to such a way, in such a way that my needs are met as well. That would be a really good association. In a family, there is maybe one member who earns income. But should they uh, have uh, communal property? Well, actually we have, I think. Uh, man and the wife are co-owners in a sense. But um, as soon as you would have the... Uh, if you draw up a contract which defines exactly how much the one owns and the other owns and how much one can use and the other can use, it is a display of distrust. I think he is perfectly right in saying so. And that those who distrust one another are not friends. So he says the whole idea of communal property in order to get away from distrusting one another, to get away from the distinction between the privileged and the underprivileged, actually presupposes distrust in others. Now that is interesting because the only way that you can accept communal property is if you trust one another. And he says, no, but the whole idea of communal property presupposes distrust. So communal pro property only works if you trust one another. And at the same time, the whole idea of communal property can only come up because you distrust one another. See, that, I, I think that, that is an ingenious provides. argument. Ingenious argument. And that... It's, it's, it's one of the, uh, the moment in Hegel that sounds like some intellectual causerie, but actually it's an argument. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, I think uh, so. I think so. Both, yeah. It works... But it's part of the remark, eh? so this is what he said during his classes, and it makes uh, perfect sense that he didn't discuss this as part of his social philosophy analysis, but if he teaches the subject, he can, of course, uh, put all of that in his, um, in his classes to illustrate his meaning. You tried to read Hegel as literary work, didn't you? Did I? Yes, well, the, 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 the phenomenology, yeah, but never yes. the philosophy of right. Therefore, okay, I'll remember. <laughs> I try to remember that. No, I, I try to do so with the phenomenology. I mean, that that is like you read a novel. That if you have a difficult passage, then you move on with confidence that it will uh, be revealed to you later on. Um, like you, you're reading a detective novel, and you want to know who 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 done it. Um, but if you come across a description of the um, the workings of the machine gun that was used for the murder, you might skip that. I mean, that is the way I read the phenomenology. So everything that wasn't really clear to me at first, I just skipped that because I wanted to know how it ended, right? I wanted to know who done it. Um, <laughs> in a way, it worked because it gave me some kind of uh, insight into the overall structure and the way his language changed and 
uh, how each chapter was organized, uh, that, uh, that you can expect in the first uh, few paragraphs to have this, and then you have the development, and it becomes very intricate and difficult, and then you have the summary, which is easier to read. So it, 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 it taught me how to read Hegel, but I didn't understand it by reading it like that. I had to go back and uh, read the commentaries and try to analyze the... Uh, steps in the argument, or what I always call the flow of the argument, I have to, to try and reconstruct that. So that was the only way to really go through it. But uh, it was an interesting experiment. But I would never do that with the philosophy of right. Oh, no, no, dear no. God, dear no. God. You know. Never, ever. But with the remarks and the additions and the this and the that. and um, No. The addition, in property, my will is personal, but the person is a specific entity, ein dieses. That's a nice translation. Dieses means this, huh? this. Mm -hmm. That refers to the phenomenology, so, as you will know, is sensory perception, the first chapter, uh, where the only thing that perception at that level can say about the world is that there is something, this is here, and this is here, and that is somewhere else, and that's the only, this pointing finger that um, is the least um, uh, mediated form of knowledge, just pointing at something, and it's there. And now this is there, and now, now, now this is there. And this is, so entity, in not in any specific sense, so anything that is observable, Thus, property becomes a personal aspect of this specific will. So, I want something, and property makes it personal. Since I give my will existence through property, property must also have the determination of being this specific entity, of being mine. So, it's not just that something is mine, and it doesn't matter what it is. No, this apple is mine. That is why my specific will is expressed in it. I cannot own something in general. I cannot own um, stuff that I am not aware of what they are. Although it sometimes happens to me that I go up into the attic and I find a book <coughs> and I can't remember why I bought it, when I bought it, what it is all about and what it is, and then I have to read it again to figure that out. I'm not, uh, I was not aware that I owned it. But as soon as I um, remember, or as soon as I get this book from uh, a specific place, then there is this specific entity, this specific book. Um, and only because it has specificity can it be a determination of my being. So simply what he is saying, my will is personal and specific, therefore the object of my will also must be specific in order to be personal to me. Everything I own is personal because it's something in particular. That is the important doctrine of the necessity of private property because if you and I own a car, do you own the windows of the car? Do you own the rear end of the car? Do you own the bumper or the engine or uh, the seats? What do you own? You can't say you own the whole car because then I would protest and say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm owner as well. So what is specifically the object of your property then? What is, what is the specific object that relates to your property? I take the car on Tuesday and I drive all the way from Croatia to Russia and 
um, I stayed there. Now it's Wednesday, it's your turn, and the car is not there. So what do you own? What is your ownership? See, I mean, that becomes completely abstract if it's not something that you own. In the other case, the car is yours, I steal it and drive to Moscow. Then there's a whole different situation. You are still the owner, and I'm the thief. It's the same but different situation. That is, and it is different. I mean, intuitively, it definitely is different for most people. So I don't know uh, why. Don't uh, and that is uh, that is uh, the, the that is very important for Hegel in general, mm-hmm. not just this example. But this is excellent example. You should put it on the website. <laughs> When you have time. Now we have here the monasteries at the end that you mentioned before. Uh, the monasteries were rightfully dissolved. Hegel is not really, really a fan of Roman Catholicism. I, I know that, uh, but <laughs> also must be. But I don't think it is the only reason. <laughs> this I is the reason. This is the reason because the community does not ultimately have the same right to property as a person. It doesn't say it has no right whatsoever but not the same way as a person does. And monasteries, of course, were in particular owners of land. Land. So that became quite important. The churches were sometimes owners of land. Sometimes they got land through um, uh, last will and testaments. So, for instance, in the north of the Netherlands, there is one church which has five members. And they signed the contract with the government three centuries ago. And that uh, contract was that the government, uh, for a particular uh, sum of money each year, uh, had the right to use that land as they saw fit. But at the end of the three uh, centuries, they were forced either to give back the land or to um, buy it from the church um, at the current price. Now, the price at the beginning was, um, uh, let's say, three or four gold guilders, which by modern standards would be something about 3,000 euros. But when they after these three centuries the state decided to buy it because they had housing on it and all sorts of things they couldn't simply give it back and then they had to pay three and a half million euros um, to that church so these five people uh, who had no minister who were the uh, church council for that church um, they um, of course were the rightful um, not owners of the land, but they could um, uh, have some say in, in, in the land and they could uh, use the, the, um, uh, the outcome, the, 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 uh, the sum of money, they could use that. Uh, I'm looking for another word, not apply, but um, utilize, let, let's say utilize. They could utilize it for anything uh, that they saw fit. They could... Um, for instance, appoint four ministers for 20 years. And then you had a church with three people in the benches and one uh, or two or three ministers even in the pulpit. They could do that. 
they could do whatever they they wanted and there were Mennonites at they were a Mennonite church so they were not under the guidance of the national uh, some kind of national body so that presupposes that that church had the right to property just as a person does and the very weird thing that because that local church could act as a property owner uh, and the church was still there after three centuries uh, the old the, the old contract had to be um, uh, had to be obeyed now I think that is the it's kind of situation that Hegel is against and that's why it's incredible it was uh, was it on the news somewhere uh, no it, it was completely silent because we had it so many times before it remained completely silent of course the state had no interest in making it public and the church had no interest in making it public and no journalist uh, found reason to talk about it they must have known for but some it's incredible. reason I mean throughout you're taking care of it uh, through generations and generations of people and mm. uh, it's worth nothing almost nothing at the beginning at some point it, you make it, yep. it, it is a fortune people found out that it was uh, perfectly suitable for building huge blocks of houses and then of course the price of the land uh, went up it went through the roof and I think even that the government um, paid less than the real value if that land was still available for sale uh, as such but because it was land that was already built upon uh, and because the church wasn't going to um, take them to court um, I think they had a bargain and that um, what was it? Three point four million dollars. Three point four million euros. Um, they they had a real bargain. Part of it actually was uh, still not cultivated, and they sold it. The government sold it to a developer, who made it a golf course, and he paid sure. something like two million for that piece of land. So the government. Uh, ultimately paid one and a half million uh, for all of that land and now we have a golf course next to the Mennonites <laughs> to build a turn whole Croatia but citizens were protesting so they could uh, the, they wanted to build a hill above the Dubrovnik the mythical Croatian hill above the city of culture of uh, progress of economic growth of, <laughs> they wanted to build a golf course there and they almost made it but the citizens went insane and uh, they couldn't just not even in Croatia they couldn't go through with okay. it I'm going to stop for a moment with the um, uh, recording I'm going to just make sure that it did record something actually so just a moment I'm going to